Thank you for listening to this week's podcast from Victory Baptist Church in Hope Mills, North Carolina. I pray that God uses this message to help you worship God, strengthen your relationship, and glorify Him. Without further ado, here is this week's message. So if you all would go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. Uh, We are uh, continuing our Easter series, our Easter sermon series, um, and we're kind of going through some of the major events uh, leading up to and including the resurrection. Uh, Last week I said um, one of the problems with going through a a series like this is that a lot of times the the events that we're reading about in Scripture, um, going through four weeks, uh, or going through the series in four weeks, the events that we're reading about in Scripture aren't really in, in time for us. Like, we're going through four weeks, but what we're actually reading takes place in, in a span of a week. So last week, we looked at uh, Palm Sunday. Uh, and this morning, we're going to be looking at the text that, that most, uh, or a lot of Christians would call Maundy Thursday. And so it's been a week for us, but in Scripture, it's only been four days. Um, this morning, like I said, we're going to be in Matthew 26. Uh, we're going to look at verse 17, and then verses 26 through 30. Uh, and this is the Last Supper, or Jesus' Last Supper. And the main idea of this text is that Jesus makes a new covenant. So Jesus makes a new covenant. So in verse 17, we have the Passover. Uh, Verses 26 through 28, it's the elements. And then verses 29 through 30 is the hope. So uh, we're going to do something a little bit different this morning. We are taking communion this morning, but it's going to be a little bit different in that we're taking communion uh, as part of the sermon instead of doing it afterwards. Um, so we're, as we're reading through it, we'll uh, take the elements um, kind of in the same way that the, the disciples did, or at least in the same context as the disciples in, in, the, in that this is where they would have taken it in Jesus' uh, teaching. Um, so before I pass out the elements, though, I do want to, to reiterate, um, you know, Paul writes that uh, there were some uh, believers who were being uh, disciplined by God for taking communion in an unworthy manner. Now, the scholars uh, debate the meaning of that, uh, what it means uh, to be taking communion in an unworthy manner. But it is pretty clear that uh, Paul says that some people, some of the believers have died because of this. Um, like I said, we're not really sure what Paul means when he says an unworthy manner. Uh, most Christians agree that it means that it is a believer who is taking communion and they have unconfessed sins, or something that they are not um, lining up with God in their lives. Uh, God has been convicting them of something, and they're not repenting of that. Um, and so if you are in that situation, if you are a believer, and you still have this uh, habitual, unconfessed, or unrepented sin, um, then I ask that you not partake. Um, some scholars would also say that this includes non-believers partaking communion, um, though I do think that that, uh, that warning is a little bit weaker there. But I will say, if you are a believer and you don't feel like you and God are kind of on the same page this morning, maybe skip taking Passover. Nobody's going to judge you for that. As a matter of fact, I, I think that I would actually have more respect for you because you have the, the recognition that you know, you've got something to work on with God. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and pass these out.
All right. So with that kind of out of the way, um, I'm going to go ahead and, and pray, and we'll get into this text. Heavenly Father, God, we praise you this morning. Uh, we praise you for the goodness that you are. We praise you that you are a loving Father. Lord, we thank you for the baptism that we've had this morning, God, and, and the visible representation of your salvation over us. Lord, as we dig into your word, I pray, God, that you will draw us close to you. Show us the truth of your scripture. Show us the truth of your salvation. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, so just for a little bit of context, uh, this morning, uh, the events we're reading about um, would have occurred four days after what we read last week. Um, we talked about Palm Sunday last week, um, and like I said, today what we're reading, uh, many Christians would call Maundy Thursday. So it's only been four days. Um, in that time, between Sunday and Thursday, Jesus would go into Jerusalem every day, and he would teach, and he would minister, and he would, well, oftentimes he was um, criticizing the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. Um, but then, uh, at, at the end of the day, in the evening, he would travel back out of Jerusalem. He'd go out to Bethany, uh, which is like a suburb of Jerusalem. Um, and all of this was happening while there were many thousands of extra Jews in the city leading up to this major holiday. So if we look at verse 17, Matthew tells us exactly what this holiday is. It says, On the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make the preparations for you to eat Passover? So here, um, obviously, we're talking about Passover. Uh, this is one of three holidays that uh, Jewish law dictated that a Jew would travel to Jerusalem to celebrate. Historians report that in the first century, um, Jerusalem would have had a population between 20,000 and 30,000. Um, but during Passover, they would welcome about 150,000 visitors into the city. So the city would go from about 20 to 30,000 to almost 200,000 people in that time. Uh, so this is very, uh, very crowded. Every guest room would have been occupied. The, the suburbs around Jerusalem would have been filled, and the hillsides, because Jerusalem's in, in kind of low mountains, so the hillsides around Jerusalem would have been filled with campers because they didn't have anywhere else to stay, and so they'd set up tent and camp outside the city. Uh, this is one reason why Jesus would leave the city in the evenings and go to Bethany uh, just to come back the next day. Right? Logistically, it just made sense. Uh, Matthew also tells us that Jesus was staying in the house of Simon, who was a leper, um, and most scholars think that Simon was one of the lepers that Jesus had healed. Um, but what was the meaning behind Passover? Why was this such a big deal, right? Uh, this holiday for the Jews, it goes back to the story of Exodus. And this is one of the most well-known stories in Scripture. Uh, so back in the days of Moses, the Israelites were enslaved to Egypt. God called Moses to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. Well, needless to say, Pharaoh wasn't a big a big fan of that idea. He had this huge slave population that he could get all this free labor and exert his power over. So he didn't like the idea of freeing all these slaves. So God sent plagues to Egypt. But Pharaoh still didn't change his mind. He was stubborn, he was hard-hearted, and he was arrogant. And so that, uh, we pick up the story here in Exodus 12, where God is about to send the final plague to Egypt. So Exodus 12, starting in verse 6. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel must slaughter their lamb or young goat at twilight. They are to take some of the blood and smear it on the sides and top of the doorframe of all the houses where they eat the animal. That same night, they must roast the meat over a fire and eat it along with bitter salad greens and bread made without yeast. Do not eat any of the meat raw or boiled in water, 
The whole animal, including the head, legs, and internal organs, must be roasted over a fire. Do not leave any of it until the next morning, but whatever is not eaten before morning, or sorry, burn whatever is not eaten before morning. These are your instructions for eating this meal. Be fully dressed, wear your sandals, and carry your walking stick in your hand. Eat the meal with urgency, for this is the Lord's Passover. On that night, I will pass through the land of Egypt and strike down every firstborn son and firstborn male animal in the land of Egypt. I will execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt, for I am the Lord. But the blood on your doorposts will serve as a sign, marking the houses where you are staying. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. This plague of death will not touch you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this is why it's called Passover, because the angel of death passed over the Israelites' houses and spared them. It only went to the Egyptians' houses because they did not paint the lamb's blood over their door frames to symbol, to, as, as a symbol for the, the angel of death to, to leave them alone. They were then, the Israelites were then uh, instructed, sorry, they were saved by the blood of the lamb. And then they were instructed to remember this event as a Passover feast. They were to celebrate it every year. What many Jews fail to realize, and, and still today, what many Jews fail to realize is that this holiday It's not only important because it remembers the time when God saved the Israelites in Egypt, but it also points to Jesus. It is a prophecy of what Jesus does for us. The lamb that was sacrificed, whose blood showed the angel of of death whose houses to leave alone, that lamb is a symbol. He's a prophecy showing what Jesus will do for all of us. Jesus would come and sacrifice himself, shed his blood, so that we could be saved from the death that we deserve because of our sin. By his death, he became our savior, just like the lamb in Exodus. But it's not just the lamb that's a prophecy in this story. It's the meal too, the actual part of the meal that they're eating. If we keep reading, Jesus shows us how he is redefining this meal and fulfilling the prophecy. So picking up in verse 26, Matthew 26, 26. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat it. This is my body. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So we see here that Jesus is is redefining or giving new understanding of what the bread is. There's, There's a little detail in this Exodus story that's easy to miss. It's the directions that God gave the Israelites for how to prepare the meal and how to eat the meal. It suggested that they were in a hurry. They should be packed up and ready to go and eat this meal in a hurry. They didn't have any time to waste. Look right here. God tells them, be fully dressed, wear your sandals, and carry your walking stick in your hand. They're ready to go. And then eat the meal with urgency. The reason that they were supposed to eat like they were about to leave It's because they were about to leave. God knew that this was going to be the last plague that would finally uh, convince Pharaoh to change his mind. That after this plague, Pharaoh would tell the Israelites that they were free to go. And so God told the Israelites, get ready to go because you're about to go and eat this meal quickly. Now, it's also in the preparation of the meal. Talking about roasting the animal over a flame, over fire. Now, if if you're cooking a whole lot of meat, that's one of the quickest ways to cook it, is to put it over a big fire and cook it that way but also unleavened bread, right? Unleavened bread is a whole lot faster to make than bread with yeast in it because you have to wait for the yeast to do its thing. You can make unleavened bread really quickly. 
<coughs> Sorry. But we also know in the New Testament, yeast is often a symbol for sin. Now, I'm not saying that eating yeast is sinful or eating leavened bread is sinful because it is only during this time of the year, only during this celebration, that the Israelites were not to eat yeast. Any other time of the year, it was fine. Uh, So yeast itself is not sinful, but it is used as a symbol for sin in the New Testament. Jesus warns his disciples to beware the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. He's showing us that sin is so easily fills our entire life and corrupts our whole life. Just like a little bit of yeast in a whole loaf of bread, it just takes a little bit of yeast to, to, uh, to not compromise, to in, uh, affect, not infect, good grief, to affect the whole loaf. It just takes a little bit. And similarly, in our lives, what seems like a little bit of sin all of a sudden has filled us completely. Now, the bread that the Israelites are eating was without yeast. It was unleavened, just like Jesus is without sin. So Jesus gives new and deeper meaning to the Passover bread. It's not simply an act done to remember and celebrate how God saved the Israelites, but it's a symbol for the sacrifice that he will make for our sins. The bread was broken and torn as Jesus's body was broken for us. He gave himself for us. And Jesus says, take and eat it. This is my body. Now, in this Passover meal, Jesus also gives new meaning to the wine. He says it represents his blood, which would be shed at the cross in just a few hours from this meal. Some people are turned off by all the talk of blood in Christianity and in our songs, but we cannot ignore the symbolism of Jesus' blood. The blood symbolism carries from the Old Testament through the New Testament. It's not something new that, that, came, that Jesus came up with. It started all the way back in Genesis. The first time that Adam and Eve sinned, God sacrificed an animal to cover their shame. The blood started way back in Genesis chapter 3. And it carries through the Old Testament, especially in the Mosaic Covenant. In the Mosaic Covenant, there was this whole system of sacrifices. And the priests were, were sacrificing animals and taking the blood and sprinkling it on the altar and Well, I can honestly say I'm glad we don't do that anymore because it would be really messy up here. There'd be lots of bloodstains all over the place. I'm glad we don't do that anymore. But why don't we do that? Well, it's because Jesus fulfilled that covenant. Jesus fulfilled the old covenant. All that blood that was symbolized in the Mosaic covenant, Jesus brings a new covenant bought and paid for with his blood. It is his blood that seals the new covenant for us, and he buys our freedom from sin and death. It is his blood that was spilled on Calvary that saves us, like the lamb that was sacrificed in the first Passover. When the Israelites painted the door frames, they painted that blood over their door frames, uh, we are protected by the lamb's blood. We are protected by Jesus' blood. It is this blood that's represented by the wine in the Passover meal. Now, we take communion in obedience to Jesus but in remembrance for what he did for us, in remembrance for his sacrifice for us. Yes, we do this 
uh, to remember the, the Passover in Egypt, but we also do this more importantly to remember Jesus' sacrifice for us. Now, we use grape juice instead of wine, but the symbolism here is the same. So Jesus says, take, uh, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. Then if we keep reading, picking up in verse 29, Jesus says, But I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So there have been a lot of differing views on verse 29. Um, and I think many of them can be true at the same time because they are not uh, conflicting. They're not mutually exclusive. Uh, so a lot of these different views we see... Uh, and so we're going to look at, I'm going to give you a few examples from the theologians in the early church. It's what we would call the church fathers or, uh, um, yeah, church fathers. So from the third century, there was a believer named Origen. And Origen had, a, he, he, we have a lot of his writings that have been saved for us through the years. Um, and we turn to his writings a lot to, to really understand what the early church was dealing with and what the early church was thinking and, and the theology that they had there in the early church. So Origen interprets the, the wine here more as fellowship with his disciples, fellowship with Jesus' Jesus's fellowship with his disciples. They were there celebrating this holiday together, right? celebrating holiday with your friends and family. It's great fellowship. They had spent pretty much every moment of the last three years together. And Jesus is warning them at this dinner that he's not going to be there physically to fellowship with them anymore, at least not until the kingdom of God is established. So there's both warning and hope here. Jesus says, in a little bit, I'm going to be taken away from you, but I will come back. We will be together again. There's going to come a time soon where we're not going to be together, but we will be together again in heaven. And then from the fourth century, uh, St. Augustine of Hippo, a lot of times you'll see this, um, we in, in our, our English language, we want to pr pronounce it um, Augustine. But a lot of times when you see that, you want to say Augustine, but most of the time theologians would say St. Augustine. Um, so St. Augustine of Hippo interprets this verse to mean that Jesus will perform the same Passover celebration, but with this new meaning that he gave it, with his disciples when they get to heaven, but not until then. So St. Uh, Augustine says that this Passover meal that they're celebrating there together, Jesus is going to do this again with them in heaven. And then John Chrysostom interpreted the text literally. So he's, he's saying that Jesus would not drink any more wine on earth until the disciples join him uh, in God's kingdom. But no matter how you look at it, Jesus is offering hope with these words. He's saying, you don't realize it yet, but I'm going to be leaving you soon. Don't worry, though. I will see you again. I will see you in heaven where we'll be able to fellowship again. We will partake of this meal again, and we might even drink some wine together. But we're Baptists, so we're not going to talk about drinking wine. Uh, so for us, as we take communion, yes, we look back to remember what God did to save the Israelites in Egypt. But we also recognize that that's a symbol pointing forward to Jesus, 
when he would come and take the punishment for our sins, and he would be the new lamb who would sacrifice, the perfect lamb sacrificed for our sins. His body broken on the cross and his blood spilled there at Calvary to save us from our sins. When we take communion, yes, we do that in obedience to Jesus, but with the recognition of what he did to save us. So our application for this passage. What application do we take as 21st century Americans living here in Hope Mills? How do we apply this to our lives now? Well, first is to know that Jesus brings a new covenant. In the Old Testament, there were a lot of covenants. But every one of those covenants pointed to Jesus. And every one of those covenants is fulfilled in Jesus. But the one that looms largest in this text is the Mosaic Covenant. The whole system of priests and sacrifices, they were all there to point to Jesus as the ultimate sacrifice. He is the perfect lamb sacrificed for our sins. Now we have access to God through him. Our B application is to be covered by the blood. In the Exodus story, the lamb's blood served as a sign to keep the the, the angel of death from coming in and killing the firstborn of the Israelites. He was a a shield for them. And Jesus' blood covers our sins and protects us from God's wrath. We're all sinners, dirty, filthy sinners. We all deserve death and eternal punishment. But Jesus paid that price for us on the cross with his blood. He paid for our salvation with his blood. When we place our faith in him, he declares us to be righteous. He declares that we are righteous. He takes our sin, he takes our guilt, and he gives us his sinlessness. As a gift, we are given his righteousness. When we stand before God at our judgment, he's not going to see our sins He's going to see his perfect son, his beloved son. When we place our faith in him, we are washed white as snow. And then our due application, well, there's actually two here. It's to hope in Jesus and be baptized. At the end of the story, Jesus warned them that he was leaving, but he gave them words of hope. He said, I'm leaving soon, but I will see you again in heaven. We will be together again, but it won't be in this broken and sinful world. It will be in the new heaven and new earth. For those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, we have that hope. We know that one day we will be reunited with God and live forever in his perfect eternal kingdom. But if you have not placed your faith in Jesus, you don't have that hope. But you can choose to surrender to him today. Confess your sins to him. Place your faith in him and be saved by him. You can have that hope too. Then, in obedience to Scripture and our new Lord, be baptized. We're going to fill this tank again on April 16th. So if you are, uh, if you're, if you are professing faith today in Jesus, come to me during the invitation, and we'll talk about next steps. Or if you've made that profession of faith before, and you have not been saved since that profession of faith, again, come to me during the, during the invitation, and we'll talk about next steps. So our application this morning is to know Jesus brings a new covenant, be covered by the blood, and have hope in Jesus, and be baptized. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, again, we thank you for all you do for us in our lives, but mostly we thank you that you have made a way for us to be reunited with you. You have reconciled the relationship that we broke with our sin. We thank you, Jesus, that you came to pay the punishment for our sin so that we could be saved by faith in you. Lord, I pray that each and every one of us will place our faith in you, put, our, put us under the shield of your blood, 
and save us from God's wrath. Lord, I pray that you will help us to step out in faith and be obedient to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So we've come to our time of response. You can respond right where you're seated. You can come to the front and pray at the cross, or you can come and pray with me. But please do not ignore the calling of the Holy Spirit this morning. Thank you again for listening to this week's message. If you would like to know more information about our church, please visit VictoryBaptistHopeMills.com or Facebook.com slash VBCHopeMills. I would also like to ask that you rate and review this podcast. And if you found this sermon helpful, please share it.